Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. It's the Media Project, an inside look at media coverage of current events. I'm Ian Pickus, the news director at WAMC Northeast Public Radio, sitting in this week. Our usual host, Rex Smith, is away. And joining me this week, WAMC president and CEO, commentator, columnist, etc., Alan Shartok, Barbara Lombardo, journalism professor at the University at Albany and former editor of The Saratogian, my old boss and my current boss, and our friend Empire Reports, J.P. Miller. Hello, everyone. Hello. 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 Hello, hello, hello. So let's start with an issue we've gotten a ton of mail on here at WAMC in recent days. Is the Queen's death big news? And if so, how do you go about covering it? And I will just preface the topic by saying that we did take some special coverage of all the various proceedings uh, with the Queen of England's death. And I would say the mail was very mixed on that. Although, personally, I think we made the right call. So, group. Is this the right thing to do? Well, let me start by saying, clearly, the American people can't get enough of it. How do we know? Well, we know that places like CNN and others do research. They say, what do you want? And they give it to them. And people are really interested in our old associates. I say that because we had to revolt against them at one point, the English and the British, and we did it, and now people can't get enough. I agree, Alan. You know, the the death of the Queen isn't something that particularly interests me, but the media organizations would not be doing wall-to-wall coverage if there weren't millions of Americans tuning in. And it's not just so much that the Queen has died, but you look at this Queen has served for how long? Decades and decades. And when they show those pictures of her in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, through all of these world events, you yourself, the viewer, have that nostalgia of, oh man, I must be getting old too. (laughs) If the queen's gone and it's now King Charles, you know, you have your own nostalgia. So it's a huge world event. It's going to be covered. And it's in competition with other news stories. So what other news story is bigger right now? There isn't one. And the only thing that could probably eclipse it is would be a big tragedy. So hopefully there won't be a bigger news story than the Queen's death. I wonder what Barbara Lombardo thinks of this. I'm with JP, and I think that there's a lot of interest in it. She was an extraordinary person. She served for 70 years. She was a reluctant queen to begin with and stepped up to the job. And she's a tremendous world figure. That said, I personally am not that interested in it. I thought it was disappointing when I turned on the round table the other morning and it was more about the Queen, but I realized that this is the one shot to do it. And even though the cable stations were covering wall-to-wall, nobody made me watch it if I didn't want to watch it. For people who did want to watch it, there it is. But some of the coverage, I think, also is so flowery and one-sided that you know, the mourning of the queen, and there's more to that position that maybe this is the appropriate time to do it, but some fawning. I think there's media fawning over the queen. I find that disturbing. You think we get wrapped up into the pomp and circumstance? Yes, definitely. I was always a big fan of the queen. I don't that's know what nice. I don't you. I, I mean, that that's, was kind of condescending. Be, that was kind of condescending on your part. It's a criticism said, of nice. the media because I think the coverage tends to be fawning. We're all so sad, and and it is sad. She was a great person in a lot of ways, but there's also downsides to monarchies and colonialism and 
Well, you've yeah, taken we'll us to the next point I wanted to hit here, which is how do you frame an obituary? And this is something I think a lot of us wrestle with when somebody who's notable and who's had ups and downs in their life or has, you know, had some successes and failures dies. How sanitized is the coverage of their death? This happens all the time in American politics, too. And Alan, I can think of you weighing in sure. on a number of figures over the years. Pretty recently, we covered the death of Colin Powell. And I would have to say, you know, the Iraq war case that he made to the UN had to be in, you know, the second or third paragraph, despite everything else that he accomplished. Well, I think we have a general view about obituaries in this country, which is you give somebody a break in the obituary. Some of the most dastardly people that I have seen come and go in American politics have been given such a break. You say, well, you know, uh, he's dead. And if I were dead, would I want somebody saying nicer things about me than maybe I fully deserved? So I, I truly think that obituaries tend to be a little bit unnews-like in that we give people who died a little bit extra. I think you're right, that we tend to be respectful of the recently dead and soft on criticism that they might have earned during their, their lifetime. And for the queen, if you take her life as a whole, there probably are more positives than negatives in what she accomplished, I guess. But there's a lot of offshoot stories. You're re-looking at the whole idea of a monarchy, for instance. JP, you run an internet site that lives on clicks. What's your approach to covering death? Well, you know, the right person dies. I guess if you're that person, you're the wrong person. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's obviously big news. And there's two sides of it. Because one, people that are critics of the Queen say, well, no one's going to care that we're critics of the Queen in two weeks when people are on to the next story. So now is the time for us to be critics of the Queen and tell everybody what's wrong with colonialism and the monarchy and all that stuff. But then there's also, I think, the vast majority of people say, why don't we be respectful to the recently dead, why don't we mourn? Let's look a little bit more at the positives than the negatives, and let's give an obituary tribute. So I, on Empire Report, always err on tribute. This is a great person, even if they were a son of a gun. Would you like to name any names? No, 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 no. I don't. <laughs> well, the name one I'm names. thinking of is Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn, yeah. Yeah, now, Roy Cohn. He's dead, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, yes. You're pretty mm -hmm. sure, yeah. Well, I remember when he died, seeing semi-respectful. I always thought he was an SOB, to be honest with you, and seeing some semi-respectful stuff. And once or twice on the air, when somebody I didn't care for died, I would say so. And I would get beaten up by our panelists like you guys for not being properly respectful during that time. So, you know, I think we have conventions around death. And one of them is treating people maybe a little bit better than they deserve. And part of what we were covering with the Queen, we meaning the media in general and the broadcast media, is what's actually happening in Great Britain. So we're not making mm. it up. We're mm. covering all that pomp and circumstances that is actually happening. So that's, well, yes, that's legitimate. But, yes, but the problem is that if Great Britain is experiencing tremendous upheavals, economic and otherwise, mm. and if you don't really do it right, it can sound disrespectful to the person who has just passed. After all, she's the head of state and of our closest ally. Yeah, from the American Revolution when we had to fight with them, but they've always been our friends. Look at World War One, World War II. Extraordinary. 
There's also, of course, the palace intrigue aspect where we know that, or we read that maybe Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle don't get along so well. And watching them walk along and each glance at each other is analyzed and each glance at the queen's coffin with the crown on top. Have you seen the queen's crown? I mean, that's a spectacle. And, you know, you wonder what's going through folks' minds as they look at that crown and were they respectful to the queen or not while she was alive? Are Prince Harry's kids going to have the HRH title? Now, that's a big topic. And the palace intrigue is another aspect which I think a lot of people keeps them glued to the TV. But back to Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn was such a legendary bad guy that he gets kudos in the obituary for being a real (laughs) all-time bad guy. You know, that's kind of the spin on his death is this was one of the, you know, mobsters and Trump and all this. You know, he got credit for being a bad dude. I think we may have been reading different obituaries because I saw some obituaries that treated him a little bit better than I would have. That's for sure. Well, I just refer the listeners to Angels in America Act 2. On Queen Elizabeth, Mm. I'd like to be able to report what she died from. And I don't think, have I missed something? Did they ever actually say... No, I the mean, doctors were concerned. That was the last sort of update right. we and got. She's 96 years old, but I don't want people to think that then you just shrug and they could just, they could say natural causes of being, of being know, 96. You just kind of run out of space. So you, is this an accusation against the media? You think that they did, weren't I doing mean, their jobs correctly? No, we have reported what we know. Barbara, I think it's an excellent point. And what really makes you say that, or at least least what makes me say it, is you see that picture of her from two days before she died. She is standing upright. She's got a big smile on her face. She's meeting with someone. You say, this person's 48 hours from death. It did not look like it to me, Barbara. And one of the things that you routinely ask when somebody passes away is, oh, what happened? What did you die from? And journalists should especially be curious about that. No, we can't necessarily get the answer. So the answer that we report to the public is they ain't saying. (laughs) Well, here in the U.S., we don't have a monarchy, of course, but we do have presidents. And uh, former President Donald Trump is in for a new round of criticism and investigation. Several high-profile books are coming out this fall, including one by Maggie Haberman, who's covered Trump for the New York Times, and another by Peter Baker and Susan Glasser, Glasser, the husband and wife team for the New York Times and the New Yorker. And it raises once again a question that has come up many times during the Trump years, which is, if you're a reporter covering Trump on a daily basis and you find out something juicy, does that go into the newspaper that day, or do you save it for your book to years from now. And there are more revelations coming out as we speak about turning points in the Trump administration. What do you think? Well, as a journalist, what do you think, Ian? You know, you're our news director here. And the real question is, is this a healthy thing for us to be exposing the way in which we operate? You know, the last time this came up with Bob Woodward's book, where he had an early insight into President Trump's thinking about the COVID pandemic, I'm a workaday, next hour type of journalist. And I am very used to trying to get a scoop on Twitter 15 seconds before somebody else does. So I have not done a 300 interview book like Glasser and and Baker have where you've got a lot more context. That being said, yes, I think serving your audience on a daily basis should outweigh the potential commercial impacts of holding information for a best-selling book. I don't like that especially when we're talking about key elections, democracies on the line, all of that, Mm. you know, people need information. You know, I could only sort of relate it to myself as always. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> and then, you know, here I, I write this wonderful book about the Wisconsin State Legislature. And every time Wisconsin is mentioned anywhere, I always say to myself, well, why did they call me and ask me what my opinion was since I'm an existing author on Wisconsin state politics? And so I think there's a certain amount that we should be concerned about, proprietarial. Who owns the rights to check in? I think in terms of the authors holding their information, and I remember the Woodward case, I think that he had even more damning evidence against Trump in his book, which escapes me at the moment exactly what it was, but his criticisms of Trump were more disturbing to me than stuff that's come out about Maggie Haberman's book. The big headline at the time was that Donald Trump had said, this virus is spread through oh, right, the air the and virus. it's, it's so very dangerous, but publicly was saying this is no big deal. Right. The argument at the time could have been if Bob Woodward had exposed that that maybe some lives would have been saved. So maybe the president uh, wouldn't have gotten COVID himself. So I think that's disturbing. And I'm, as a daily, like a workaday journalist like you, Ian, I share that concern about if you know something, say something. <laughs> and that's a problem. And at the risk of whataboutism, when I, I'm criticizing these authors or journalists who are authors, you know, I think about the people working day in and day out in the administration who know how horrible, knew for weeks and months and years how horrible things were, and they didn't come out to warn the public. They stayed in there until they were writing their own books or they resigned, and I find that even more disturbing. I wonder honest. if you just take a second, because sometimes I think we're too comfortable you know, using phrases on the show without explaining to people what we're really talking about. So maybe a little bit of a discussion of what about ism. Well, how people say... Trump falsely claimed that he won the election, and then Trump supporters say, well, what about Hunter Biden? <laughs> Which That's has, what about It no. has nothing to do with, with no the original kidding. question. Yeah. Well, we were also talking about the what about with Maggie Haberman, what about Bob Woodward? And what, the, one, the difference that I would say with Woodward is Woodward is not an everyday news reporter for the Washington Post. I think he has an association with the Washington Post, but he is not an everyday reporter with the Washington Post. And Maggie Haberman is, mm -hmm. I would argue, the number one Washington reporter, White House reporter for the New York Times, which is her full-time job that is her job to report on the White House. So this is an issue for you know her and the New York Times. She takes a risk of holding information back for a book and that that information will get scooped elsewhere by some other reporter. Anytime that a source tells you something, that source could easily say, boy, Maggie didn't write about that in her article three months later. I'm going to tell this other reporter that information and that reporter can scoop you. So I think it is probably a tough thing for Maggie. I assume that a place like the New York Times where all these journalists are writing books, right? I mean, they're the top journalists in the world work at the New York Times. I imagine dozens of them are writing books. I also imagine that the New York Times has some kind of policy for, mm. uh, for them to deal with this kind of thing. And I, and I bet they speak with them frequently about it. But Maggie's the top dog over at the New York Times in, in my mind, and I'm excited to read her book. It's the Media Project. If you're just joining us, where you been? Ian Pickus sitting in this week for Rex Smith and Alan Shartok here. J.P. Miller from The Empire Report and Barbara Lombardo, the former editor for The Saratogian who teaches journalism at the University at Albany. Speaking of books, NPR's own Nina Totenberg is out with a book chronicling her friendship 
with the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Causing some eyebrows to go up. Sure, and this yeah. friendship was not entirely known to the public, although I understand it was not a very well-kept secret in Washington. Well, I think I've heard about this before. Until this is new. she died. And yeah. then we found out that Nina Totenberg, while covering the court, was also having dinner with Ruth Bader Ginsburg right. on a weekly Softball basis. Softball coverage of her. What do we think of this? Uh, Nina Totenberg, let's be fair, is the number one Supreme Court reporter in America, and I would say a public radio treasure. But she's on a book tour now, and there are some uncomfortable questions about sources and access, at least in my mind. Wow. I think it really is an issue. But, you know, human beings have relationships with people. Sometimes it's people that they cover. And I think it's unrealistic to say that in the real world, that if you are a journalist, a writer, a reporter, that you are going to be able to never be friends with the people that you cover. You probably should try to refrain. But in real life, you're going to have those kind of relationships. I, I, I have a question. Would you say the same thing if it was a Fox News journalist and Clarence Thomas? Or would you say that's disgusting? Well, I'm not saying it's all good. I'm saying it's unavoidable. And then I think the next step is transparency. So people need yes. to make sure that the public understands that there is some kind of a relationship or friendship. So the transparency is you know, after the person dies, that's no, when it's no, revealed? No, no, From the beginning. Claude, yeah. you're getting and nasty. I'm not getting nasty. No, I mean, no. It's, it's, so, it's a good question. So my issue is sources. We say so-and-so has good sources. Now, that involves, sources involve a trading relationship. You give me something, I give you something. We all have sources in this business. Is that potentially corruptive? Yes, I mean, it is potentially corruptive. And I think it's got to be pretty clear what kind of horse trading is going on in this case when you grant anonymity. In Nina Totenberg's situation, you know, they had a friendship that predated the rise of both of their careers. And I actually respect what I read about her, that she studied Ben Bradley, <laughs> who became friends with John F. Kennedy and parlayed it into a golden era of the Washington Post. That being said, in our smaller newsroom here, it would be very hard for me to imagine us having uh, you know, Saturday night dinners with the governor or the mayor or that kind of thing for a period of decades without having to disclose in our next story, by the way, we're buddies. And this is a small town where we're speaking from in Albany. Everyone does know each other, no question about it. But I tend to spend time with the other reporters <laughs> more well, than the people we cover. Well, you know, that's interesting because here, you know, Alan Chartok, me, I had relationships with Cuomo the Elder and the, and the Younger, and sometimes it was resented by some of the other reporters who would make it plain that they didn't like it. Well, it's uh, up to the editors also have a role in this to make sure that your organization is kind of bending over backwards to make sure that you are not getting sucked into favorable coverage. And maybe there comes a point where even if a friendship went back for decades, that you have to say you can't cover this because you're too close to the source. Well, that's funny. I, I, I don't agree with it. Of course, I, I'm sure you understand that. I think you, you take information where you can get it as long as you're honest about it, as long as you're not making it up. Why not? Well, when you're trading, uh, you said you're trading something when you have a source. What you should be trading is integrity. I'm going to report honestly. I'm going to be fair. I can take some stuff from you that is for background and not reveal your identity if it's not relevant to the story. You shouldn't be trading. I won't cover something. 
Oh, well, I I think that's presumptive on your part, to be honest with you. I don't think I ever said that you— I wasn't saying you. I'm just saying in— Well, I had just spoken, and then you— the shoe fits, I don't know. Then you came up with (laughs) with that particular thing. Ian, would you say that you could properly cover someone who you have a decades-long relationship and have personal dinners with? Do you feel like you could do a good job covering them on news stories? Because eventually, you know, being in the news, eventually there's going to be a negative thing happening to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right, that you're going to feel like you have to cover. Right. And do you feel like you could do your job as a journalist being decades-long friends with that person and having dinners with them? No, I frankly don't. And uh, one thing I tell my class, especially in the media ethics class, my refrain is, you've got to be able to stab them in the heart if you need to. Let's say, you know, you've got to do a really tough story. You can't pull that punch. And it would be hard to, you know, have this relationship on Saturdays. On Monday, you go to the Supreme Court. They're sitting up there, nine people, and you act like you're not friends on Saturday. In the long run, I don't know how that plays out. And I have nothing but respect for Nina Totenberg. But when she says that she was able to separate the two, I think that's a classic example of you know, the book by Mark Leibovich, this town about how, you know, interwoven Washington is. She's married to a U.S. senator. She's friends with the Supreme Court. People listening to her great stories on NPR never knew that she had this friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg for all these years. And it makes you look back on those stories and say, well, were, were these on the level? Did she ever pull a punch? Should she have been critical in, in this story when she wasn't? I think it gets pretty tough. But I do understand the impulse on her part to ingratiate herself with as many people connected to the judiciary as she possibly could so that she would get things that other people didn't. So in terms of her reporting, I mean, she broke the Anita Hill story. She had that before anybody else. That wasn't an accident. Let's go to another story now from the Associated Press. This is interesting to me because it's the future, I think, for a lot of media companies, but it raises some red flags. A U.S. firm that monitors false online claims reports that searches for information about prominent news topics on TikTok are likely to turn up results riddled with misinformation. NewsGuard researchers ran searches on news topics including covid Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the 2020 election and found that nearly 20 percent of the videos recommended by the site, which means recommended by this algorithm, contained misinformation. Researchers are especially worried because who uses TikTok, young and impressionable minds? I see this story as just another version of what we saw with Facebook 10 years ago. Uh, Is there any way out? JP? Well, I am addicted to TikTok's competitor, YouTube Shorts. And it is the most amazing thing. You don't search for anything. It just sees what you watch for five seconds versus what you flip through. And it knows what you want. Shows me some surfing videos, Steve Harvey jokes. Queen funeral. Queen, no, not, see, they, they, they know that that's not my thing. <laughs> and so they are super influential. And that it's not even like in Google News where you might search for a story and, okay, do they feed you a New York Times article or a Fox News article? It's much different than that. It's you're flipping through and you have no, you're not searching. You're just getting fed what they know that you want to watch. And, Ian, I wouldn't even call it news. What it is is, as you know, it's opinion people that talk and make their great point for 15 seconds on a topic and they sound really authoritative but do they know no it's all self-reinforcing stuff so it's very concerning but you know they've got first amendment how do we fix it well let me ask you a personal question Mm. would you let your kids on tiktok well i listen to a podcast on these four tech entrepreneurs in silicon valley and these are four very successful tech entrepreneurs 
and they all say to a person that executives at Google, Facebook, TikTok, all these firms do not allow their kids at a young age to have cell phones beneath the age of 16 or 18, and they don't let them on social media and they don't let them have apps, that, that the people that work at these firms know that this is like giving your kid two packs of Marlboros every morning on their way to school. And in fact, what these tech entrepreneurs say is they would rather have their kid take down two packs of Marlboros every day than take down all of the social media and what they get on Instagram and Facebook and TikTok. I mean, those Marlboros have a disclaimer on the package, unlike TikTok. Right. I find it hard to believe that those kids are not finding another way to sneak around what their parents are trying it's to do. It's amazing prohibit. the way they do that. Yeah. When you think of TikTok, that AP story that you're referring to, Ian, had mentioned that more than 100 million videos were removed by TikTok, and yet... They don't come close to addressing the problem of misinformation on that site. And it takes me back to Casablanca where I'd say, I'm shocked. I'm shocked <laughs> to hear that they have misinformation of at least 20% of their videos. Maybe the most quoted movie line ever. Maybe, but I'm a little wary of how the government would regulate these platforms. Tale as old as time now. Actually, it was the start of a beautiful friendship between misinformation mm -hmm. and social media, but if, if you look <laughs> at uh, Facebook over the years, there's always been a race between uh, fact-checking and accurate information and content that is shared and the speed of the platform. And the speed of the platform has always outpaced flagging an article and that, that sort of thing. It also gets wrapped up into America's idea of the First Amendment, I think, um, where you know we protect inaccurate speech. And that has become a huge problem um, in everything from the vaccine to American politics, don't you think? Yeah, Ian. It's, you know, there used to be in any neighborhood, you might know a crazy guy that had radical views. And maybe he had an, one other buddy. And they would talk and drink beer all night and sit by the fire and talk about their radical views. But they wouldn't do anything because they were in their neighborhood. They had no way to connect with the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of other Americans that hold those radical views. All those radicals, those guys that used to sit around and drink beer and by the fire and talk about the radical views, they are now all connected on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, and they reinforce each other's radical views, both on the right and the left. And it's a huge problem in our country. And the big thing, like you mentioned, Ian, is the First Amendment. How can we go against the First Amendment? But you know, how do we let all these radicals trade their views? And they get fed the same stuff all day, every day. And it takes moderates and turns them into radicals. Right, because the platforms and the algorithm rewards extremes on either side that are being posted. I mean, a straightforward fact check of whether a vaccine is safe for you is not going to get amplified a million times on Facebook. What is? These are microchips and don't put them in your body. That's the sort of post that takes fire. And it leaves traditional news outlets like ours, I think, at a bit of a disadvantage. I mean, you know, I can just tell you anecdotally the things that uh, we share on our own pages that you know, get a lot of attention are not typically straight ahead news coverage of the Pittsfield City Council from Tuesday night and how they decided on this uh, water bill. You know, that's just not going to catch fire with those types of users. What would you do about it, Barbara? You got 30 seconds. Wow. If, if I had 60 seconds, we could totally solve this problem. <laughs> 30 seconds. All I can say is that we need to keep trying to alert the public about what's false and, and that the credible media needs to just keep saying it over and over. And Go down swinging? Well, we're not going to go down swinging. We're just going to keep swinging. <laughs> okay. I like <laughs> the optimism. 
Well, that's been the media project for this week. That's thanks. it. That's it. Thanks to Alan Shartok, Barbara Jeez. Lombardo, JP Miller. Thanks also to our producer, David Gustina. And thanks to everybody for letting me sit in for the first time. I've worked here for 14 years, so I got to check a box today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.